This program is made possible by the members and donors to the show. For details, visit the membership tab at bestoftheleft.com. Now, welcome to the award-winning Best of the Left podcast with clips today from The Young Turks, The David Packman Show, The Tom Hartman Program, Jim Hightower, The Library of Electronic Press, The Majority Report, The Onion Radio News, and Comedian Lee Camp with a bonus video clip for our Apple iOS and Android app users from The Onion. If you are a parent who has been paid uh, too much in welfare benefits, your children might be forced to pay back the state later on. This is a story that was reported by the Sacramento Bee, and I think that it's a really scary one because it might kind of set a standard uh, for the rest of the country. And basically what's happening is uh, parents who are paid too much money in welfare benefits uh, will later... I guess, let's, let's say if they pass away or if uh, they're no longer uh, easy to access by state officials, those state officials will go after the children and force the children to pay back those welfare benefits yeah. that the parents were overpaid. And it's a disaster. It's a disaster. It's totally unfair. It's the state's fault yeah. that these overpayments happen. I mean, it has nothing to do with the kids. You have no idea what your parents are doing money-wise. You are not, you should not be on the hook. And this will be appealed. I mean, it was an administrative court judge that, that ruled on this, and that is <coughs> about as unbinding in the appeals process as anything could be. But the fact that it's going on right now, and you have people who are trying to pay, get their way through school, who can't afford school because they have to pay the state back for an overpayment on the state's part in the first place, that's ridiculous. No, it is ridiculous, and it's really scary for college students because what happens is oftentimes these students have absolutely no idea that their parents were overpaid in welfare benefits. Like, they didn't even know their parents were t getting welfare, right? Yeah. So they are trying to pay for school. They are hardly, you know, able to get the loans necessary or the grants necessary to pay for college. And then all of a sudden, state officials go after them and say, hey, by the way, it turns out that you, you owe us $12,000 uh, in welfare uh, overpayments. Yeah. And, and it's because your parents got paid too much money when they were receiving welfare. Why would that and, college student be, or why would that person, young person, be right. uh, responsible for what their parents did? And, and what the state did wrong. You're correct about that. And the other, I mean, the other side is it, the state should fix it in a way that it can fix it. Reduce welfare payments going forward. You know, take it out of income tax refunds going forward from the parents, not from the kids. Right. The kids should not be on the hook for this. If it happens, then something is wrong with the way the state's doing it. The state can't pass a problem along to somebody else. You know, if they may, it's a bank error in your favor. Oh well. You know. Right. And you know it, what's really interesting is when you look at the numbers. For instance, um, in the fiscal year ending in on June 30th, uh, all of the 58 counties in California reported a $133 million in overpayments. $133 million in overpayments. It's, you got to have better oversight. You Easy have solution. A better Just let the kids pay. I mean, it, you have to have better oversight, and you have to have a better remedy if the oversight isn't there. Right. In other words, you are right, but the oversight wasn't there. So listen, according to Republic's to um, reports published by the Social Services Department, about $60 million in overpayments is, is recouped each year, mostly through reduced welfare payments. Then roughly a quarter is repaid through cash payments. People who say, you know, the government sends you a letter that says you owe us, you know, $34, and you go and you pay it or you send a check. And interceptions of income tax refunds, which all of that is legal. They should do that. If they make a mistake, they shouldn't make $133 million worth of mistakes, though, and then blame it on and, and have other people who had nothing to do with it repay. Don't think you move too slow. It's not your
tears after crying, saying it's a mistake. It's a mistake. It's a mistake. Did BP make uh, shrimp lose their eyes? This, of course, refers to the BP oil spill. A little more than a year after the BP oil disaster, seafood from the Gulf of Mexico is being called as safe to eat as it was before the oil spill, according to, F to the FDA. I've never believed that. Have you believed that? I don't believe anything the FDA says. Oh, so it's not part particular to this. Right. Uh, shrimp populations have plunged. The New York Times reported last month that Gulf fisher people were complaining of the worst white shrimp season in 50 years, with yields 80% lower than normal. That's quite a difference. And several fishermen and processors make similar complaints in a CNN piece, which says um, they don't think eating shrimp is as safe as it was before the spill. And one makes an even more startling, startling claim. Fishermen are starting to bring in shrimp without any eyes. They've evidently lost their eyes and they're still alive. Now, there's no hard link right now saying this is specifically related to the BP oil spill um, that, uh, and that the shrimp declines are related to this eyeless condition. However, you're not going to find any links unless you look for them. And BP uh, certainly wants to prevent those links from being found. And the FDA is really just insisting everything is fine. So I think we're getting to what Lewis is saying, which is, do we trust the FDA? I don't. Time after time, we're hearing stories about corrupt medication approval uh, processes involving the FDA. And, and uh, you know, we're not going to find these links unless we have real independent investigation, which so many players are dead set on preventing. Mm -hmm. Yeah, the FDA, just like so many other uh, government bodies, are bought and sold by the corporations, which are supposed to monitor, plain and simple. Absolutely right. And, you know, evolution does exist, but shrimp aren't going to evolve out of needing eyes in 18 months. Let's make that very, very clear. Right. Okay, well, that's it for but, but is it BP? We can only... Uh... We don't have a hard link there yet. Yeah. You're right. You cut me down to How do we bring jobs to the United States? How do we keep jobs in the United States? We invented the vacuum tube. Pretty soon, radios were being made all over the all over the world. We invented the transistor. Pretty soon, we invented the integrated circuit. We invented a lot of solar technology, and now we're importing a lot of solar technology. What's the deal? I wanted, and and in the midst of this, you know, of course, there's this huge manufactured uh, scandal that Daryl Issa is trying to pump up in the House of Representatives about a solar company that uh, had some government-backed loans. And, oh, my God, it, the, the Obama administration might have had something to do with that. 
less than 1% of the total loan portfolio of, I believe it was the Energy Department, and, uh, you know, that, that went down. And we were talking about this and looking at this, and, you know, where can we find somebody who really knows this stuff? And then I came across this. Gordon Brinzer, shown in this, this is in the Business Journal, this article showing with Senator Lisa Murkowski and Senator Ron Wyden, you know, one of the front men in the trade dispute with China, and Solar World is an advertiser on our show, uh, disclosure. Uh, but I thought, wow, we've got a resource right here. So Gordon Brinzer, uh, who, who I have not met or talked with before, uh, welcome to our program. Thank you. Gordon is the president of Solar World USA. SolarWorldUSA.com is the website. Um, Chinese government has provided $30 billion in subsidies to its homegrown manufacturers and solar manufacturers last year. Is this number accurate out of this article? Yeah, it is accurate. In fact, it's probably pretty conservative from all of our accounts. And we've provided everything to the Commerce Department. And what's amazing about those subsidies is that it's really focused upon them developing an industry specifically for exporting their product overseas. And they've done little to basically grow any type of solar industry um, demand in their own country. So... That's pretty amazing because I've I've heard stats that China is the largest manufacturer of solar panels now in the world, but that's an export industry. It's clearly clearly an export industry. They've only, I believe, this year they'll install maybe 500 megawatts of actual solar in their own country. Yet they have over 16 gigawatts, or that's about 16,000 megawatts of manufacturing capacity, and that's really focused. Their intent, and they've been very clear about it in the media, and their public um, statements by their executives come out and say their intent is to own the U.S. Um, solar industry. So they've focused their exports on the U.S., on Europe, mainly to you know put out of business a lot of U.S. companies. Now, this is not, um, I, I mean, this is new, relatively new with the solar industry because the solar industry itself is relatively new. But ever since the, the 80s and the 90s when we went into this um, you know, we had tariffs in this country from 1783 until the 1990s and that, that said, you know, if there's a dollar's worth of American labor in a pair of shoes made in Connecticut and you want to import a pair of shoes like that made in China where it might be 30 cents worth of labor or made in Mexico where it might be 50 cents worth of labor, there'll be a 70 cent tax at the border if it comes in from China or a 50 cent tax at the border if it comes in from Mexico to level the playing field. And not just for labor, but for environmental standards and other things like that. And that's why we made socks in the United States and shirts and jeans and computers and TVs and all kinds of things. And then we blew all that up in the 90s with this so-called free trade mania. And the Chinese government, Chinese are just walking in through this door, are they not? It's a wide open door door for them. There is really no barriers or hurdles for them to get into the solar industry in the U.S. And what's even more amazing is that Labor is only 10% of the actual cost of solar manufacturing, so there is no warranted cost advantage that the Chinese have. They Literally, this is just dumping of their products through their legal subsidization practices. So in many cases, as you pointed out, there could be a labor advantage. In this case, there is none. Wow. So this is a low percentage. So what this is is a case of they're saying, okay, if we put all these other companies out of business around the world, then we will own the marketplace, and then we can raise the prices to make it profitable. 
That that is correct. Um, their intent has been made very clear. They if they own this new renewable energy sector, um, energy is going. As we know, it's the bloodstream of our economy, sure. and I honestly believe that China sees this as a very strategic maneuver for them um, politically. Um, and environmentally and from a economic standpoint. Right. They want to become the ExxonMobil of the solar industry, I, I guess, you know, or, or they want right their, now, their companies. Exactly. Right now, we basically we rely on the Middle East for our fossil fuel sources, mm-hmm. our gas. We're fighting wars over there. Soon, if we continue to let this process go down the path that you know China is pushing it, we will be dependent upon the Far East for our solar products. Right. So what are you and and I, I guess there's this coalition that that you guys have put together. Um, originally, it, it, there were there's 125 members now. It was uh, smaller than that before. Uh, many United Steelworkers and other unions are on board. Um, what are you all calling for? This is the uh, if I if I have this right, it's calling itself the Coalition for Affordable Solar Energy. That is clear. There's a coalition. Oh, that, that that's what came out in opposition to your efforts. There, there is, there is an opposition out there. It's a very small opposition. The Coalition for American Solar Manufacturing has asked the Department of Commerce to basically um, initiate a case, which they did last week, which does two things. One, it does the initiation by Commerce sends a very strong signal that our concerns are valid and significant enough to warrant an investigation, and also validates that the coalition represents a majority of the domestic industry. And as a coalition, what we're asking for is we want a sustainable and fair global competition. Um, what we have now is a foreign industry that is completely out of balance and focused on exports and as a result has created significant harm to the U.S. industry. We at Solar World, we've been able to compete globally on a global platform for years, and we want to continue with that global competition and have a very um, vibrant U.S. industry around global competition, but it's got to be fair and sustainable um, practices. And as you mentioned previously, what China is getting away with today, both from a business perspective, is not sustainable. From an environmental perspective, is not sustainable. We are held by different standards. The people in the United States and worldwide have said, okay, for businesses to be sustainable and to be um, fair, there's a certain set of standards from business practice, environmental standards that we have to uphold to, and China's not being held accountable to those same rules of the playing field. Yeah, but really this is a very old game. I mean, back in the 1880s and 1890s, uh, John Rockefeller, when he was running, when he basically owned the oil businesses in Pennsylvania and Ohio, he would drop the price of kerosene, was the principal oil product at that time. He would drop that price below his own manufactured price in order to drive out of business all of his small competitors. And then once he'd driven them all out of business, he'd jack the price back up to whatever he wanted. And ultimately, that led to you know the, the enforcement of the Sherman Antitrust Act and Teddy Roosevelt breaking Standard Oil up and whatnot. But China's playing that game now. 
Yes, they are. And I think what's very interesting is there's been reports out that the U.S. is a net exporter of raw material and equipment into China for the solar industry. And they're even in the process of taking over the raw material refining also. So it's not just going to start stop with the solar manufacturing or the manufacturing of the actual solar product itself. You're seeing now where they're starting to take over the raw material refining in right. solar and also the equipment manufacturing in solar will soon follow. So the jobs in the U.S. will slowly disappear from the manufacturing sector of the industry. And that's a huge concern for us. We have a thousand employees here in Hillsborough. They do a fantastic job. We've been manufacturing for 35 years on U.S. soil. And our intention is to keep manufacturing, keep those jobs here in the U.S. and grow those jobs in the U.S. If it is growing I hope you enjoyed this show, but also consider it a valuable tool for not only aggregating, but more importantly, amplifying our view of progressive politics in the world. So if that's true, I ask you to support this work by becoming a member of the show at whatever level you're able, as anything from a basic leftist up through the ranks of socialist, communist, Satanist, or even the most reviled level of support, George Soros. I produce 11 episodes a month of fearless coverage on all the hot-button issues we face, maintaining a rock-solid schedule. So if that sounds worth supporting, please consider signing up to donate as little as $5 a month or even $55 a year. Members also gain access to bonus audio and video content that doesn't make it into the show itself. So for a concrete way to support a strong progressive voice, please visit the membership tab at bestoftheleft.com. In American politics, the past not only sticks with us, but it often provides the best definition of what's going on in the politics of the present. So it can be useful to revisit some powerful words from our history. Today's media and political powers, for example, keep using the word conservatism to describe current political trends in our democratic republic. Poor choice of words. From the Koch brothers to the U.S. Chamber of Commerce, from GOP House Speaker John Boehner to such anti-worker governors as Walker of Wisconsin, an autocratic power grab is underway to enthrone corporate power and money elites to rule unilaterally over our government, economy, and environment. Nothing conservative about that. Rather, a word from America's past best describes their goal, plutocracy. It is the direct opposite of democracy, which is government by the many, by all of the people, by us. Plutocracy, on the other hand, is government by the wealthy, by them and for them. The struggle between democracy and plutocracy has defined our political history from the revolution of 1776 forward. And now, here we go again. Wall Street banksters, corporate chieftains, speculators, and other pampered plutocrats are out to crush the hard-won laws, rules, institutions, and social compacts that we, the people, have struggled to put in place over the years to undergird our people's democratic authority. Busting unions, unleashing corporate money in politics, restricting access to courts, gutting financial and environmental regulation— all of these and more are about supplanting our democracy with their plutocracy. This is Jim Hightower saying, call them what they are, not conservatives, but self-serving plutocrats. Or nail them with another good word from the past, kleptocrats, government by thieves.
small town in Tennessee known as Obion County, and they basically have a special fee for people who wish to uh, be protected in case of a fire. So if there is a fire, the fire department will go and help them if they pay a $75 annual fee. If they do not pay that annual fee, the fire department will not come to their rescue. They will allow the houses to burn down. So I guess this kind of uh, policy was put to the test over a year ago when uh, one family's home uh, was on fire. The police department showed up, but they realized that the family did not pay this fee, right. and they allowed the home to burn to the ground. Well, the situation has occurred again, uh, and this is Vicki Bell's home, and she claims that her house was on fire, she called the fire department, they showed up, but they did absolutely nothing about it because she did not pay the $75 fee. You know, it's, it's unbelievable. I mean, if, if you have a fee like this in place, right? And there, look, at, look at the damage. I mean, I know. It's, it's horrendous, as you would imagine it would be, and it was covered by the news. If there's human nature, people are so focused on rules right now, and you see it in Good Samaritan laws, you see it at Walmart when people are trampled, and they say, well, it's not our jurisdiction. You see it in unions where one guy can't pick something up, even though it's in somebody else's way because it's the other union's job to pick it up. People just need to use their fucking heads. I'm sorry. I, 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 it's ridiculous. If a, if a home is burning down and you are a fireman and these people didn't pay $75, you can be sure they'll pay like double after the fire if you put it out. It's. I don't. And what do you do? It makes me so angry. It makes me angry as well. You got to use human judgment. You have to have compassion for others when it comes to certain situations. And here's a perfect example of one of those certain situations, yeah. right? And what happens if one home is on fire and it puts the other homes in the neighborhood in danger? Do you blow out the fire or take out the fire from the other homes that paid the fee, but you allow that one house to burn down? It's just so stupid. And you know, the mayor of the town is basically uh, saying, look, you guys might not like it, but we don't have the funds to fight these fires unless people pay us the fee, so it is what it is. In fact, I'll read you his exact quote. He says, there's no way to go out to every fire and keep, them, keep up the manpower, the equipment, and just the funding for the fire department. That's Mayor David Crocker. Yeah. Davy Crocker. <laughs> Uh, from Tennessee also. Uh, he's, he's an idiot. I mean, and yes, he may be right. They don't have the funding. They don't have the manpower. If I'm not a fireman, if I see a home burning down, I'm going to grab a hose. I'm going to, like, you know, throw my, you know, my Aquafina on it. I'm going to do something. Right. I, <laughs> I'm I, sure that'll be successful. But, but what I'm saying is there's, just, there's a level of common sense that people just don't use. Because right. they're so bogged down in bureaucracy. It's... It's so frustrating. You know, we did this story about uh, a young girl. I, I forget how old she is at this point. I believe she was about four years old in China who got run over by uh, two vans, okay? And people in this factory did nothing to help her. They literally walked around her, walked over her. They did nothing to help her. And I think a lot of people in the United States and around the world were very quick to criticize what was going on in China. But when you look at this fire issue, it's something very similar. Because what if there were people in that house? Yeah. What if there were people that needed to be saved? If the family didn't pay the stupid $75 fee, you're not going to do what's necessary to save their lives? Right. But the sanitation department is going to take, I don't know, probably 20 hours of overtime to haul away all the damage from that, yeah. from that fire. And it's going to cost the city more money than putting out that fire would have. It doesn't matter whether there's a person or a dog or a cat or nothing alive in there. Someone's home is burning down. Right. You're a fireman. Put the fire out and deal with it afterwards. Mayor Crocker, lose your election.
We are the 99%. It's the rallying cry of the Occupy Wall Street protesters. They say that a tiny minority controls America's wealth. So, how rich have the richest got? And how poor are the rest of us? Is it really 99% versus 1%? The richest 1% of the U.S. population, they own a third of U.S. net worth. So how did we get here? When times were good, everyone gained. In Bill Clinton's boom of 1993 to 2000, average incomes went up, just as they did during George W. Bush's boom at the beginning of his presidency. But if you were rich, you gained even more. That's nearly half of all the growth in the Clinton boom years. Under George W. Bush, it was even more. And there are some really rich people in the U.S. today. In fact, there are now over 3.1 million millionaires. But these are not the richest of all. The U.S. has over 400 billionaires, more than any other country in the world. Who's at the top of that pile? These three have a combined net worth of $131 billion. That's just over the combined budget shortfall of every state in the U.S. for 2011. More than the cost of the global war on terror in 2010. But haven't the rich lost out as well as the poor in the economic crash? When the economy tanked, everyone suffered. In 2010, the average American earned $26,487, down over $2,000 in real terms on 2006. If you were poor, it's been an even bigger drop. The 24 million least wealthy households in America saw their average income go down by 10%. If you were super rich, it went down too. The 400 wealthiest American households lost around 4%, including inflation. That's down to an average of $270.5 million per household. So the richest lost 4%. The poorest lost 10%. Part of the reason average Americans have been hit so hard is where their wealth comes from. Before the crash, middle-class Americans had 65% of their wealth tied up in their house. But the richest 1% of the population kept most of their wealth in stocks and shares and business. So, when house prices went south, many Americans found their wealth disappearing too. Now, one in every seven Americans lives below the poverty line. That's a record 46.2 million people. One in six Americans have no health insurance. That's 50 million people. Of every 17 Americans, at least one will be earning below the minimum wage of $7.25 per hour. 14.5% of American households are defined as food insecure. That means for every seven households, one will have trouble putting enough food on the table. But some things are doing very well. Sales of luxury cars are up. 
big luxury brands have reported their best sales figures in years. Tiffany Jewelers up. Brands like Louis Vuitton and Givenchy. Brands like Gucci, Leaf Saint Laurent, and Porsche. And America's top executives are paying themselves very well too. It is down, but still pretty good. $4.9 million each in the latest figures. And a Washington Post investigation found the following. Since the 1970s, median pay for executives at the nation's largest companies has more than quadrupled, even after adjusting for inflation, according to researchers. Over the same period, pay for a typical non-supervisory worker has dropped more than 10%. But don't the super-rich pay taxes? They do. Just not quite so much as the rest of us. If you earn between $100,000 and $200,000, you will be paying up to 25% effective tax rate, and that's before payroll taxes kick in. The 400 richest tax returns surveyed by the IRS paid just 18.1% in 2008, and it's got better for them. In 2001, as George W. Bush became president, that rate was 23%. So is it 99% versus 1%? The richest 1% of the U.S. population own a third of U.S. net worth. But an even smaller group, the 0.01% of the population, are at a record high. In fact, is it really 99.99% versus 0.01%? So where do you fit? Are you one of the 99.99% or one of the 0.01%? Hi, I'm Sam Cedar. You may know me from my shows on Air America Radio, from filling in for Keith Olbermann on Countdown, or even, God forbid, my directing shows like Comedy Central's I'm with Busey. If not, you should really get to know me. Not personally, of course. I think we'd both find that uncomfortable. But if you're a fan of the best of the left like me, I think you'll enjoy my daily live show and podcast, The Majority Report, at Majority.fm. It's a daily dose of political news, analysis, and guests like Chris Hayes, Robert Reich, Digby, comedians like Mark Marin, Janine Garofalo, filmmakers like Morgan Spurlock and Lucy Walker, and on occasion, between my rants on raising taxes, ending wars, and decorporatizing our democracy, I can be mildly amusing. I'm unbought and unbossed daily on the Majority Report at Majority.fm. This is a stunning story. It's an op-ed, really, in, um, in Forbes magazine. It's really worthwhile because uh, it, it dovetails with a, uh, another report that is out in terms of education. It's written by a guy named Gene Marks in Forbes magazine. And um, I don't know anything about this guy. And perhaps his heart seems in the right place. But is this delusion by the establishment in this country, uh, which is a big part of the problem, 
And, you know, I, I was on uh, uh, Radigan's program on Monday, and, and Radigan and I had our classic argument where he didn't want to hear about uh, ideological differences. He wanted to talk about exclusively the extraction that's taking place by the banks and by the big insurance companies from our economy, i.e., the fact that they take more money out of our economy than they actually produce for our economy. But at the root of this extraction is not simply graft. It is not just that um, these uh, our politicians uh, are, are raise their money from these people. That is a big part of it. But it is they are of the same mentality. I don't think Gene Marks got paid by anybody to write this. Obviously, Forbes paid him. But to take this position, it is a mentality. It is an ideological mentality. And to ignore its existence is to do so at the peril of our society. He's talking about a president's uh, speech that he gave in Kansas about inequality in America. And he's praising the president's speech. And he admits that the opportunities for the 99% have become harder to realize. He says, my kids are no smarter than similar kids their age from the inner city. My kids have it much easier than their counterparts from West Philadelphia. He presumably is in another part of Philadelphia. The world is not fair to those kids mainly because they had the misfortune of being born two miles away into a more difficult part of the world and with a skin color that makes realizing the opportunities that the president spoke about much harder. This is a fact in 2011. And I commend him for understanding this fact. But he goes on to write, if I were a poor black kid, I would first and foremost... First and most importantly, work to make sure I got the best grades possible. I would make it my number one priority to be able to read sufficiently. I wouldn't care if I was a student at the worst public middle school in the worst inner city. Even the worst have their best. Now think about this. If this middle-aged white man was a poor black child, what he would do is he would excel at school. And, he writes, I would use the technology available to me as a student. I know a few school teachers, and they tell me that many inner city parents usually have or can afford cheap computers and internet service nowadays. If I was a poor black kid, I'd use the free technology available to help me to study. I'd become an expert at Google Scholar. I'd visit study sites like SparkNotes and CliffNotes to help me understand books. I'd watch relevant teachings on Academic Earth, TED, and Khan Academy. I would also, when possible, get my books for free at Project Gutenberg and learn how to do research at the CIA World Factbook and Wikipedia to help me with my studies. If I were a poor black child, this is what I would do. Is this easy? No, it's not. It's hard. And it takes a special kind of kid to succeed. But it's not impossible. The tools are there, the technology are there, and the opportunities are there. Well, I have a question for Gene Marks. As a middle-aged white man who's not poor, why aren't you excelling more? Why are you just writing for Forbes? Why aren't you publishing Forbes? Why don't you own Forbes? Why aren't you a billionaire? If it was that much easier for you to do it, which you, con you concede, 
Why didn't you excel? Why weren't you the top of your class? Perhaps you were. And this is, this is all you have to show for it? Why haven't you cured cancer? Why haven't you created world peace? You know what I would do if I was a poor black child? I would just become a millionaire. Because one day I'd be a poor black child, and the next day I'd be a rich black child. In Philadelphia, there are nationally recognized magnet schools. I would use the internet to research each one of these schools so I could find out how I could be admitted. I would find out the names of the admissions people and go to meet with them. If I were a poor, a poor black kid, I would make it my goal to get into one of these schools, or even a private school. Most have scholarship programs. If I were a poor black kid, I'd be using technology to research these schools on the internet too and making them know that I exist, that I get good grades, and I want to go to their school. If I was a poor black kid, I would get technical. I would learn software. I would learn to write code. The biggest challenge we face isn't inequality, it's ignorance. So many kids from West Philadelphia don't even know these opportunities exist for them. <laughs> but you know, if Gene was a poor black child, he could be there to tell all these kids about it. From all the um, stuff that he gained from being a middle-aged uh, a, a middle white guy, he could impart that knowledge to him as a poor black child and tell the other poor black children. Technology can help these kids, but only if these kids want to be helped. Not just only if these kids want to be helped. The thing that he is missing here, the problem with this entire piece, no matter how well-intentioned, is that he does not, he completely ignores the role that government and society has in providing these, these poor black kids, or whomever it is, with the access and the awareness that it's going on. He turns this story into a moral play for the righteousness of the individual, when in fact this story is not about the righteousness of the individual, and he's so close to understanding it. But his ideology refuses, him, refuses to allow him to see that it is society's role to impart this knowledge to that poor black kid, because we cannot take the mindset of a middle-aged white guy who's writing for Forbes magazine, and impart that knowledge into that poor black kid just because he wants to write an op-ed about it. It is the role of government to do this, and we are failing on that accord. Failing on it. I think, I think just, it's also much easier just for the poor black kid just to become a millionaire. Just, just jump ahead. And then... He can find out about all that other stuff. The poor black kids from West Philadelphia just go live with their auntie and uncle in Bel Air. Bingo! In West Philadelphia, born and raised on the playground is where I spent most of my days. Chilling out, maxing, relaxing, all cool and all shooting some b ball outside of the school. When a couple of guys who were up to no good started making trouble in my neighborhood. I got in one little fight and my mom got scared and said, You're moving with your 
auntie and uncle in Bel Air. I begged and pleaded with her day after day, but she packed my suitcase and sent me on my way. She gave me a kiss and then she gave me my ticket. I put my Walkman on and said I might as well kick it. First class, yo, this is bad. Drinking orange juice out of a champagne glass. Is this what the people of Bel Air living like? This might be all right. There's a gentleman by the name of Charles Feeney, and he is a billionaire. Okay, he's extremely wealthy. In fact, his wealth started after he co-founded the Duty Free uh, Shoppers Group back in the 1960s. Now, um, he is not your typical uh, rich bad guy. He is actually a rich good guy. In fact, he believes in giving away as much of his money as possible to good causes. So I'll give you an example. Uh, recently, uh, the New York Times outed him. He did not want to be known for this. He didn't want the press to talk about it. He wanted to be an anonymous donor to Cornell University, a school that he is one of the alum for. Mm -hmm. Right. So uh, he actually donated a total of $600 million to Cornell University, 350 of which went toward a technology-based satellite campus, which is expected to generate an average uh, or generate $1.4 billion in tax revenue, 20,000 construction jobs, and 30,000 other jobs to help run the facility. Now, that is what I would call a job creator. Now. Ironically, he did that by giving away his money. So it's, you know, the other, the rich guys uh, that are the bad guys that day, Anna was referring to, say, oh, no, 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 if you let us keep our money, then we'll be job creators. If we give away our money, then we can't create jobs with it. Nonsense. If you use the money, then you're, you can create jobs with it. But if you just put it in your bank account and collect interest on it, it doesn't help anybody create any damn job at all. And look, there are a lot of great guys who happen to be rich, obviously, right? The Bill Gates Foundation is trying to get people to give away their wealth, and he's participating in that. Mm -hmm. And he, along with a lot of other millionaires and, and some billionaires, are, gonna give away, are trying to give away their entire wealth. That's fantastic. Now, this guy I particularly love because he didn't want any credit for it. You know, they had to out him as a really great guy. Right. <laughs> and then, second of all, look, he didn't make his money by doing anything wrong like the bankers. He just did duty-free shops, which, by the way, everybody kind of enjoys. Hey, we get stuff for duty-free, okay? And then, and so there's, you know, and then the third part of it is that um, he uh, doesn't even own a house or a car. Right. He says that he's unimpressed with what wealth can buy you, which I think is fascinating. And he talks about, well, it turns out that he has like a $15 watch and he always flies coach. Which is amazing to me. Like, at least fly first class. Guys. Yeah, I mean, like, you earned it. You know, fly first class. There's definitely some value in it, believe me. Yeah, I mean, Charles, much love, dude, but it's okay. Take a load off. Go first class. They got warm nuts. They okay. do have warm nuts. <laughs> and, and I love, I mean, you're already giving away, like, literally billions of dollars. It's, it's okay. But, you know, what's great about it, though, overall, is he's like, look, I don't need the money. And I don't know what I would spend the money on, right? I don't. He's like, it doesn't do me any good. I love that attitude. And, and he's right about this, right? Even if you were, had more extravagant taste, which if you're rich, there's nothing wrong with that, right? You want to get a fancy car, you want to get a great home, of course. Not, there's no problem with that, right? But there is some limit at which you go, okay, I have enough. Mm -hmm. And the whole point of money, in my mind, is actually peace of mind, right? Because, I mean, all of us who have not had money for so long, we're so stressed over it. That's the number one problem. Once you get beyond that stress and you feel like, oh, okay, we're going to be all right, then it's all gravy, right? Then you don't really need it. Maybe you want it, but you don't need it. And he's saying, look, well, basically, once you get past that point, be a good guy. Don't be a bad guy. 
You know, a perfect example of what you're saying right now is a study that we talked about, and it's the most memorable study that we've ever talked about, in my opinion, that says that after making $75,000 a year, the amount of money that you make has absolutely no impact on your level of happiness. 75,000 seems to be the magic number, because 75,000 is what you need to survive, you know, to live comfortably, I should say. Right. Uh, and so. it doesn't mean you're flying first class and having the time of your life and taking vacations to Monte Carlo. But apparently with people, they feel like, okay, at this point, I'm not stressed to death over money. As an anti-consumerism advocate, I'd like to encourage you to shop less, don't buy things you don't need, and only buy the necessities from local, independently owned businesses. That said, if you don't take this good advice, then at least there's a way to shop that helps support this show at the same time. Simply click through to Amazon.com, just one of the major companies under constant boycott by one liberal cause or another, from the banner posted at bestoftheleft.com. Better yet, click through just once and bookmark that link to use every time you shop. Your shopping experience will be identical to normal. It will cost you nothing extra, but 7 to 8% of the cost of your order in soulless corporate blood money will be siphoned off and used to tremendously support the production of this show. Thanks for doing the right thing, whatever you consider that to be. It's the Onion Radio News. A boss's threats are hilarious. This is Doyle Redland reporting. Employees working under champion direct marketing manager Dale Farner reported today that their immediate supervisor's threats during an early meeting were hysterically funny. The unknowingly comical head of the firm's Knoxville, Tennessee office elicited the workers' amused response with these carefully chosen remarks. If you all like your job here, you all better start to shape up. You think your job's guaranteed? I can replace any one of you just like that. There are plenty of folks out there who take pride in telephone sales. The employees, most of who planned to quit before the end of the summer, were unable to contain their giggles when Farner threatened to cancel the staff summer picnic. Joel Redland for the Onion Radio News, online at theonion.com. Change is not the same thing as progress. In fact, change can be the exact opposite. It can be regressive, as we're now learning from, where else, Congress. A flock of Tea Party-infused Republicans has certainly changed the political dynamic in Washington, and exultant GOP leaders are claiming that they are now the voice of the people. But most people won't find themselves represented by this change, much less see it as progress. That's because the newcomers in Congress, whether Republican or Democrats, tend to live high up the economic ladder, way out of touch with the people they're representing. Indeed, 40% of newly elected House members are millionaires, as are 60% of new senators. While the great majority of workaday Americans are struggling to make it on about $30,000 a year and having at best puny pensions and iffy health coverage, these incoming lawmakers tend to be sitting pretty on accumulated wealth. Their financial reports show them holding extensive personal investments in such outfits as 
Wall Street banks, oil giants, and drug makers. Their wealth and financial ties might help explain the rush by the new Republican House majority to coddle the corporate powers. From gutting EPA's anti-pollution restrictions on big oil to undoing the restraints on Wall Street greed, they're pushing for a return to the same laissez-fairyland ideology of the past twenty years that got our country in massive messes. At the same time, they're out to kill the green jobs program, bust unions, cut social security, defund Head Start, and generally stomp on the fingers of working families trying to hold on to the middle-class rungs of that economic ladder. This is Jim Hightower saying the change in Congress is taking America backwards, not forwards. For the new majority, literally, is the voice of millionaires, and that's not progress. So it goes another lonely day. You're saving time, but you're miles away. Your flowers drowning in some bitter tea. You're seeing last opportunity. The mission of this show is to aggregate and amplify the best voices of the truly liberal media, and now you can play a critical role in helping fulfill that mission. I pick out the best clips I hear to share with you, and now you can do just the same thing extremely easily. Now available at bestoftheleft.com, each clip I play is made available individually with simple buttons that allow you to share your favorites on your networks through Facebook, Twitter, by email, and beyond. By myself, I can amplify this content to thousands of people, but collectively, we have the potential to reach millions. No kidding. Become your own media activist by taking one minute to share your favorite content a couple of days each week, help more people plug into the truly liberal media, and be an integral part of this extremely virtuous cycle. Thanks so much for your help. The coffee is warm, but your milk is sour. Life is short, but you're here to flower. Yesterday, uh, Bill Daly stepped down. He was chief of staff for President Obama. We got a new chief of staff. His name is uh, Jacob Lou, otherwise known as Jack Lou. And uh, the question is, what kind of guy is he? Is he a solid progressive, or is he another establishment uh, guy who's in favor of the banks, etc.? Well, we have our answer in a number of different ways. I will describe to you who Jack Lou is, and it will become evident to you who President Obama is selected. First of all, uh, here's an old uh, headline from a couple months ago from Politico: Lou. Colon, a liberal GOP says that it trusts. And it explains how Eric Cantor is a big fan of uh, Jack Lou, among other Republicans. And you begin to get a sense of, uh-oh, we're in trouble. Uh, then you look back at his history and who he worked for. Can you guess who he worked for? Of course, one of the big banks. <laughs> if President Obama hired him to be one of his top advisors, it would be really weird if he didn't get paid millions of dollars from the financial industry at some point. So here's another guy. So they're like, oh, thank God Rahm Emanuel left. He had made $18 million at a hedge fund, and you know he was too enamored with the banking industry. So then came Bill Daly, who just in the one year alone had made $8.7 million from J.P. Morgan. Well, oh, thank God Bill Daly's gone. Who's in next? Jack Lou, who's made millions from Citigroup. Now, he made millions in a couple of questionable ways. One was by betting against the subprime uh, mortgage market. So when the economy crashed, uh, they did better. But I actually don't mind that one at all. Look, he made the correct bet on that. He worked in finance. I get it. He shorted uh, what he should have shorted. That's not my problem with Jack Lou. If you're going to have a bone to pick with him at Citigroup, it should be that, uh, in fact, most of his bets were disastrous. In fact, in one year alone, his group that he was heading lost over 500 million dollars 
after that year, their losses were so bad, they stopped reporting them publicly. And the losses for a group that his group got merged with in total were over $20 billion. And again, you can say, hey, listen, he won some, he lost some. What business is it of ours? Well, it became our business when Citigroup got $45 billion in bailouts and then rewarded Jack Lou another $900,000 in bonuses on his way out the door. Two weeks later, he was inside the Obama administration. Now, that's a problem. I don't mind if you win on some bets you made on your own, you lose on your bets and you gotta pay it, hey, that's your problem, not my problem. But when I'm paying you a million bucks for your disaster, for your epic collapse of Citigroup that you had to get out bailed out, and then you use my bailout money to give it to Jack Lou, and then he comes inside the office, what do you think he suggests? Of course, at every position he'd been in in the Obama administration, he said, oh, no, 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 don't do deregulation of the banks. Uh, uh, let's, I'm sorry, don't do regulation of the banks. We should deregulate the banks even more so they can take even crazier risks and cost us even more money. So Jack Lew, yet another stooge of Wall Street that President Obama has promoted. Congratulations to us. And uh, let's give you some of the more, uh, some of the more details to so be absolutely clear. When he was going up for confirmation and he was at some point actually talking to the Senate Budget Committee and Bernie Sanders was asking him, hey, wait a minute now, didn't deregulation cause the problem? The fact that you took away all the rules from Wall Street? He said, quote, in that testimony, the problem in the financial industry preceded deregulation. I personally don't know the extent to which deregulation drove it, but I don't believe that deregulation was the proximate cause. Wrong again, Bob. It was the cause. Once you allowed the companies to mingle our, you know, depositor money with the money that they were gambling with, and you allowed them to bet against their own clients, and then you allowed them to make as big a bet as you want. In 2004, the SEC took away the limits on the size of the bets that they could have, so they could leverage up to the hilt. All those things, and then some, all deregulations, all led to that epic collapse. If Jack Lew, in a best-case scenario, is totally ignorant of that, well, then he's a fool. And the fact that he's a chief of staff of our president is an embarrassment. But I'm afraid he's not ignorant of that. He uh, gains substantially from that. That is part of the problem. Now, meanwhile, of course, the mainstream press loves Jack Lew. He works with Republicans. The Republicans like him. So he must be a great bipartisan guy. Uh, here's the New York Times. Lew has built a reputation as a pragmatic liberal. That means the one that sells you out all the time for the Republicans, a pragmatic liberal who believes Democrats must compromise with Republicans on long-term deficits in order to forestall draconian cuts to entitlement programs like Medicare and Social Security. That's always their code words, like, oh, no, 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 I had to give the Republicans everything they wanted so that we wouldn't have even more cuts later on Medicare and Social Security. No, you didn't. You gave the Republicans what they wanted because you are a Republican. You might not think you're a Republican. You might think, oh, I've been a Democrat my whole life. But what are your actions indicating? When the Republicans deregulated, along with Bill Clinton, the financial industry, you loved it. When the Republicans gave the bailouts and you got nearly a million bucks off that bailout, you loved it. When the Republicans cut taxes on the rich, people like you and your friends, you loved it. That's because you are a Republican. You are deeply conservative. And so whenever President Obama goes to replace anybody in his administration, you think, oh my God, Hope is around the corner. Maybe he's going to go in the right direction. We only got a year left before the election, even less than a year. And here comes progressive uh, Obama. Nonsense. The guy doesn't have it in him to pick a progressive. 
He doesn't believe in progressivism. He believes in, what does the establishment say? Who's, who's in favor of the establishment? Jack Lew? Okay, okay, I'll hug you. Come on, come on, come on in. Can you imagine President Obama not actually picking uh, a progressive as his chief of staff? And you know, they always tell me, oh, no, no. You don't understand Obama defenders. They're like, no, because of Congress, he can't do X, Y, or Z. Well, this ain't got nothing to do with Congress. It's his chief of staff. Whenever he goes to pick someone in his inner circle, it is always someone deeply conservative and totally pro-banker. Last uh, quote from Ezra Klein of the Washington Post. He says, Lou has, quote, emerged as one of the members of the Obama administration Republicans prefer working with. Well, there you have it. Once again, President Obama, when it is only his choice to make, has picked someone the Republicans love working with because he is deeply conservative. moment of clarity from leadcamp.net. What if there were a highly secretive right-wing organization that consisted of America's top business leaders getting together with government officials and it met behind closed doors away from the prying eyes of the press? What if at these clandestine meetings the state governments across this country were told exactly which laws to enact in order to turn America into a far right-wing hellhole which looks and smells like Rush Limbaugh's bathtub. What if it wasn't the voters that mattered, but instead this secret group of a hundred rich assholes? Now what if I were to tell you that what I just described does not exist? Because it's not really a secret organization. It's called ALEC and it's been written about in several mainstream outlets like The Nation magazine. ALEC stands for American Legislative Exchange Council. Contrary to popular belief, it does not stand for assholes leading everything. Cox. It's a really great organization if you're a fan of corporate profiteering, circumventing government, and fat-faced white men legislating a woman's uterus. If you're a fan of those things, then Alec is a fucking amusement park with all the free nacho cheese you can stomach. I'm suspicious they may also be behind Jay Leno's monologue jokes, but that's just speculation. The way it works is Alec has modeled 800 bills to push through state legislatures in a painful yet consistent manner like someone passing a kidney stone. About one out of every five do indeed become law. And these government officials know that if they're good boys and girls and try and pass these horrible destroy the country bills, then they will be rewarded with massive campaign contributions and all the free nacho cheese they can stomach. Alec has been the driving force behind such things as opposing climate change legislation and environmental regulation, privatizing prisons and privatizing schools, destroying workers' rights, taking away voting rights, tax breaks for the wealthy, the NBA lockout, the rise of Russell Brand, and the shitty last season of Lost. 
I made up the last three, but that doesn't mean they aren't true. Do you see what I'm saying? There's a group of hardcore, full-frontal twats governing this country who were not elected and will do anything for profit and power. They go by the name Alec, and they are not like Alec Baldwin. They aren't good-hearted people doing good work that brings other people joy. Instead, they are cruel, talentless, right-wing, demon-spawn hacks who are responsible for some of the worst shit our species has to offer, like Stephen Baldwin. They should change their name to Steven. Hey, this is Dave from Olympia, Washington. I have really enjoyed the musical numbers of, between the uh, the clips that you've been playing. And part of it is growing up in the 80s, but uh, I remember there was uh, an early Occupy that uh, faded from Chris Hedges giving just a, an impassioned, fiery speech, and he ends up with the line, you're uh, the Occupiers, you're the best among us. You fade into uh, you're the best which, you know, with the Credit Kid. And then most recently, in these songs, it's, for, it's, it's weird. Um, your teenagers are very formative years, but feeding into I the Tiger, those musical things that you grew up with just tug on you. So I just say I, kudos on your choice musical uh, numbers in between there. Had a suggestion, since you'd recently done a thing on this, Another 80s band, Oingo Boingo, had a song, Nothing Bad Ever Happens to Me. And the verse that stood out to me goes, Did you hear about Joe? He's unemployed. Threw him away like a useless toy. Pushed down the drain after 20 long years. No future, no pension. Nobody cares. Uh, and then it goes into the chorus. Why would they want to do such a terrible thing? But why should I care? Nothing bad ever happens to me. And there's several uh, tragic situations that the refrain is always, why should I care? Nothing bad ever happens to me. Just symptomatic of that libertarian mind frame that uh, we're all better if we go it alone because nothing bad's going to happen to me. Uh, whereas the fact is we're stronger as a group. That's what um, humans do. That is our advantage in, in the world. That's our advantage in the wild against, uh, you know, predators, predatory institutions predatory people. So hope that suggestion can at some point maybe work into your schedule. Thanks for you. Hi Jay, uh, this is George from South Florida. Long time listener, not a member yet. But uh, I'm calling mainly because I just heard your end of show where you talk about your friend who whose appendix burst and went to the hospital. I just wanted to let you know that something very similar to me, or happened to me on a smaller scale, in all respects, uh, but similar, dog bite instead of uh, appendix bursting, but in between jobs with no insurance. Would have loved to have the option to have insurance, but couldn't really afford to buy insurance privately at the time. So this was maybe two months before I was eligible to get insurance from my next employer. Uh, anyway, to make the story short, I just wanted to let you know that there are ways to possibly have your friend be pardoned for that money. Um, I simply wrote letters 
to the hospital, you know, explaining my situation that I was without a job and that I couldn't afford a, you know, the $1,500, $2,000 bill that I got for the two-minute consultation from a doctor that didn't even touch me. And they pardoned that money. So it's just a small suggestion. Maybe your friend could do that to either get some of that money pardoned, if not all. But I just wanted to offer that information up to you. All right? Love the show. Bye-bye. Uh, hi, Jay. Um, my name is Sean Dobson. I just wanted to weigh in on the whole Daryl vegan thing. Um, you know, and, and you guys sort of inability to uh, see eye to eye on certain issues. Part of me was laughing at it because I've known people like you, I've known people like Daryl, and I could totally see that even when you agree, you'll disagree because of the way that you express yourself, the way you guys think. Anyway, I'm, I'm a white guy from the South, vegetarian for years. I haven't eaten, I haven't eaten meat in years. Um, I've tried to be a vegan in the past, and I'd like to be a vegan again someday. I think six weeks was about the longest I could stand it. <laughs> anyway, I'm saying that mostly to be product, uh, provocative because other than that, I agree with Daryl 110%. I don't know. I don't know how to express it. I was trying to think about how I could express myself. I I really couldn't. There's no way I could do it on um, a voicemail. I don't even like I don't even like even my friend's voicemail, let alone doing something like this. Anyway, I went to the podcast that Daryl recommended and I was totally blown away. Amazing. Amazing stuff. I finally I as at work I almost cried because I finally heard someone say the things that I've been thinking for so long and trying to convey to my close friends um, and unable to. Even my wife, you know, she's from another country, so she doesn't understand it. But these topics are so subtle, so complex. Anyway, please, please, please follow Dale's advice. Check out this podcast. I only listen to a couple of them. I think I might have happened to listen to the best ones ever, but I think it was like 198, 199. The guy says everything that I wish I could say. So, again, please, please check it out. And all I would say to Daryl is try not eating meat for a week. Just as easy to do it. Uh, maybe you could do that as a uh, sort of a stunt or something to get people to listen to um, uh, Blacking It Out. Love the show and uh, look forward to uh, hearing the next one. Thanks for listening, everyone. Thanks to all those who called into the voicemail line. If you would like to leave a comment, question, or an activist call to action yourself to be played on the show, the number to dial is 206-202-3410. So I am no closer to deciphering the comments uh, that were uh, discussed in the, in the last episode about white privilege. I did receive a, a couple of voicemails and an email on the subject, but none that were actually illuminating and, and brought something new uh, to, to the discussion to help you know, figure it out. So I continue to hope that, that the answer will come. This is definitely one of those situations where if you're sitting there listening, you're like, oh yeah, I know, I know what the confusion is here. I know what the answer is, but I'm sure someone else is going to call it in. You're wrong. No, no one else is calling. You should, if you know the answer, you should really 
dial right now and uh, and illuminate me. So again, that number, 206-202-3410. In the meantime, I want to talk about something. Whenever I talk to anyone in the real world, almost, like 80% of my stories start with, oh, I heard this somewhere because that because I hear everything somewhere. That's my job is to hear stuff. And, um, and so I heard something somewhere, but I don't know where. And but it stuck in my head, and so I wanted to share it with you guys. And I, if I if I knew where it was, I would just pull the clip and, and probably play it for you. But I, I heard this really interesting take on the concept of uh, contracts, like business contracts, uh, mortgage contracts, anything like that. Someone uh, essentially was likening a contract to a promise, and it said, you know, when when two people enter a contract, you promise. I'm going to pay my mortgage and you promise to give me the house and that's that's the contract. And you know, but promises are you know they are made with the current circumstances in mind and in in the same way that you would promise to be home in time for dinner. But if there was a giant pile up on the freeway and uh, traffic was so bad you couldn't get home on time, well that's a broken promise, but it's not exactly your fault. And so that's when you call on the cell phone and explain what's going on and, hey, I know I promised that I'd be home in time for dinner, but this unforeseen circumstance is here. And so then you uh, would, in that circumstance, renegotiate the promise with the new circumstances. And so the point being made was essentially that that is obviously how contracts should be seen and, and dealt with is they should be a promise that people are held to whenever uh, circumstances allow and when very wild unforeseen circumstances come into effect those contracts should be able to be renegotiated just as you know any uh, reasonable human being should be able to renegotiate uh, un- under new circumstances so that's it i mean it's a really short sweet kind of point but i thought it was a nice different way to to put a new perspective on what a contract is and how you know so many people in this country are in in trouble with the contracts they've signed based on circumstances completely out of their own control so if we were a society made up of humans rather than mindless corporate robots we would actually be able to solve these sorts of problems so that's it for today. Just going to thank a couple of members before I go. Matthew F. signed up for a leftist yearly membership just back on August 13th and has stuck with the show since then. And Kenneth C. signed up for a socialist monthly membership. That means he went a little bit above and beyond the uh, the minimum donation amount uh, uh, for his monthly recurring membership donation. And he signed up on June 29th and has stuck with the show since then. So huge thanks to Kenneth and Matthew and all the members and donors who make the show possible. I couldn't do it without you guys. Of course, everyone can support the show just by telling everyone you know about it and helping spread the word about uh, especially individual clips you can share through either social media or by email. All of that can be done very easily through the website. To stay tuned into the show between episodes, you can join up with us on Facebook and Twitter. And for details on the show itself, including links to all the sources and music used in this and every episode, all that information is always posted in the show notes on the blog. So coming to you from far outside the conventional wisdom of Washington, D.C., my name is Jay, and this has been the Best of the Left podcast, coming to you every third day, thanks entirely to the members and donors of the show, from bestoftheleft.com. Shining sheet, the only maker that you wanna meet.
you are.